we started several weeks ago a study on the book of Esther, and we are now in Esther chapter 4. So that's what we want to invite your attention to, Esther chapter 4. Uh, we told you when we started this study that uh, we did this a few years ago in the noon Bible study where we were trying to uh, look at passages of Scripture, look at books of the Bible that don't get a whole lot of attention. And Esther is one of those books. There, there, there are four or five books in the Bible that, with the exception of one or two verses, we don't give them a whole lot of attention. Esther is one. Ruth is one. Ecclesiastes is one. Song of Solomon is one. I could go on there. You know, we, it, if it's the 23rd Psalm, we know it. If it's John 3.16, we know it. But there are other books that we don't spend a whole lot of time in. When it comes to Esther, uh, uh, to be totally honest with you, I've, I, I've never been a huge fan of the book being included in the canon. Uh, because, as we said the, in the introduction uh, several weeks ago, you don't find God mentioned once in Esther. You don't find worship mentioned once in Esther. There's no mention of temple. There's no mention of synagogue. There's no mention of any of the things that we commonly associate with worship. So we, we, we have been reluctant to approach Esther because... Uh, it has these difficulties attached with it. But if you look at the book uh, for what it does have, rather than look at it for what it does not have, there are lessons to be learned. There are, there are life lessons to be learned from the book of Esther. In chapter 1, uh, we saw how Queen Vashti uh, stood up to... Uh, King Xerxes, when King Xerxes uh, tried to demean her by having her parade herself in front of his friends naked, literally with nothing on but a crown on her head. And uh, it, we, we likened that to the exploitation uh, that commonly takes place when those who have power seek to exercise that power in an abusive way towards those who don't have power. And we praised Vashti for having the courage to stand up and say no. But if you read all of chapter one all the way to the end, you see that there was a consequence that came with that. Vashti is banished from the throne. Uh, she's only mentioned again uh, in the first verse of chapter two. After that, I don't believe her name is mentioned again. And uh, Xerxes, who was left flabbergasted by the fact that Vashti said no, probably because as king, he's not used to anybody telling him no. Uh, he had counselors around him that used this, uh, this, this rejection as a means to further uh, humiliate and uh, demean women. Uh, an edict was passed in the land that all women had to do whatever their husbands told them to do. Uh, and, 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 and they put fear in the king's head. If you don't do this, then women are going to get out of their place. Now, that sounds strangely familiar. 
Uh, if, 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 if you replace women with Negroes, that, that, that sounds, and, and you replace Xerxes as king of Persia with white folk, that sounds strangely familiar. We, we got to clamp down on this before colored folk get out of their place. And, and, and it speaks to the fact that while we live in uh, America, and while America has ideals toward which we hope one day they will actually aspire, the reality is we live in a capitalistic society, and capitalism only works through exploitation. Capitalism does not work unless there is an exploiter and there is an exploitee. And historically, uh, those with wealth and those of a particular uh, race have been the exploiters. And those who don't have wealth, those who are poor, uh, are marginalized, and they are the exploitees. Vashti is then removed. Then chapter 2 dealt with the selection of a replacement for Vashti, and that's where Esther comes in. Now, Esther is also exploited. But she's not exploited by Xerxes, at least not at first. She's exploited by her uncle, Mordecai. Mordecai finds out that there's a search going on for someone to replace Vashti, and Mordecai enters Esther into the contest in order to, 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 to replace uh, Queen Vashti. And, and he makes her go through all of the motions of preparing herself so that she might be a favorable selection by the king. He tells her, hide the fact that you are Jewish. Don't tell anybody what your nationality really is. All of this, and, and there's more in chapter two. We've already covered chapter two. I'm trying to, to bring us up to where we are. Uh, uh, all of this is exploitation. And what it serves to remind us is that sometimes the lessons that we learn from those who are in charge are not the lessons that we need to learn. It's terrible to be exploited by others. It's even worse when you're exploited by one of your own. Mordecai was Esther's kin. Mordecai was Esther's blood. We don't know what happened to Esther's parents. The text does not say. But we do know that Esther was under the care of Mordecai. And how bad is it? that the one who is charged with caring for you exploits you in the way that he does. And he exploits Esther for his benefit. This is not for Esther's benefit. Baby, I'm trying to put you in the best position possible. No, that, that's not what he's doing at all. He's looking for what exploiting Esther will do for him. That's chapter 2. Then, the last time we were together, a couple weeks ago, uh, uh, we looked at Esther chapter 3, where uh, Haman is introduced to us. And, 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 and uh, Haman, instead of Mordecai being moved into a position of prominence within the kingdom, Haman moves into that position. And Mordecai first is upset because Haman has the position that Mordecai thinks he ought to have. But more than that, Mordecai is upset because Haman is uh, a sworn enemy of, of, of Mordecai. He's, let, me, let me change that. 
because he's not a sworn enemy personally. He's from a race of people that are the sworn enemies of the Israelites. And here's, here's something about that. They all kinfolk too. Because Haman is from a tribe of people who can trace their origins back to a man named Esau. And Mordecai is from a tribe of people who can trace their origins back to a man named Jacob. And Jacob and Esau were brothers. Various tribes came, came from them. Uh, and, 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 and what happened between the brothers early on continued through their children. Anything sound familiar to you in that? And through their children's children. And through their children's children's children. And so when Mordecai found out that Haman was getting this position, Mordecai refused to show Haman the proper respect that everybody else was showing. When Haman walked in, everybody else would bow. They, they, they would stand up and then they would bow in order to show respect. Mordecai wouldn't do nothing. Wouldn't do anything at all. He, he'd act like he didn't even see Haman. He, he showed him no respect at all. And Haman got upset when he found out that Mordecai was a Jew. Because he knew the story too. He knew, you know, that, that, that's that other side of the family. Y'all got the other side of the family? Everybody in here got the other side of the family? You know, we, we don't mess with the other side. Of, well, 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 Haman knew that Mordecai was from the other side of the family. But here's what Haman decided to do. Haman decided that since Mordecai is going to show me disrespect, I'm going to destroy Mordecai. And I'm not only going to destroy Mordecai, I'm going to destroy everybody. So I told you to turn to, to Esther chapter 4. But for a minute, turn to Esther chapter 3. Yes. Remember now, God ain't mentioned nowhere in Esther. This ain't got nothing to do with God. This has to do with the fact I don't like you. I, I, I don't like you. I, 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 I disrespect you. I, I, I'm not going to show you the respect. Here's the thing. Here's the thing that, that, that it's important for us to learn, particularly right now, because we have someone who is completely unworthy of our respect in the White House. My opinion. You might not share it. My opinion. We have someone in the White House who is completely unworthy of the office that he holds. But if President Trump walked through that door right now, I would hope that every person in here would stand not in respect of Donald John Trump, but in respect for the office of the President of the United States. Judges walk into courtrooms, everybody stands. You and I both know that not every judge deserves. <laughs> I got a lawyer back here. <laughs> not, not every judge deserves that, but we don't honor the person 
we honor the position that they hold. What Mordecai does is he shows disrespect for the person, but in the process, he disrespects the office. And he's mad. This is a man who's pouting. And why is he pouting? Because I didn't get the, 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 the spot that, that, that Haman got. So in, in Esther chapter 3, when, when Haman finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, look at what he does. Look at verse 8. Esther chapter 3, verse 8. Haman then spoke to King Xerxes, there's an odd set of people scattered through the provinces of your kingdom who don't fit in. I want you to read this, to hear this with a contemporary ear. Hear what's going on right now. There's an odd set of people scattered throughout the provinces of your kingdom who don't fit in. Their customs and ways are different from those of everybody else. Worse, they disregard the king's laws. They are an affront. The king shouldn't put up with them. If it please the king, let orders be given that they be destroyed. Do you see that? Do you see that? Mordecai, one person, disrespects Haman, one person. But Haman seeks to use the authority of his office to not just punish Mordecai, but to punish everybody who is of Hebrew descent. Let them be put to death. Let them be destroyed. And, and, and then he adds this, I'll pay for it myself. If, if, you, if you're thinking about objecting king because it might cost too much money, don't worry about it. I'll cover the cost myself. I'll deposit 375 tons of silver in the Royal Bank to finance the operation. Now, look, look, look at verse 11, because this is, this is the problem of power. People who have power and who are accustomed to having power have an indifference towards those who don't. Look at verse 11. Go ahead, the king said to Haman. It's your money. Do whatever you want. Where's the outrage? You're talking about killing thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people. I don't sense from King Xerxes any outrage. You know what I sense? Well, it ain't going to cost me nothing. Well, that's not what this version says. Message version says, go ahead. The king said to Haman, it's your money. Do whatever you want with these people, which would lead me to suggest that perhaps that's not the appropriate translation because he decides if it's not going to cost me anything, why should I care? Why should I care about children in cages? They ain't my children. 
So, so, so do, do with them what you want. Why, why should I care about families being separated from one another? Ain't my family. Do what you want. And they are strange people. That's what it says. Odd set of people. They don't fit in. What does that mean, they don't fit in? That means that they don't agree with me. Those who are in power expect everyone to assimilate to them. Ain't nobody in here a Star Trek fan but me, right? Okay. Those of you who are Star Trek fans, y'all remember? Uh, and I got people just checking. No, okay. Stay with me. In Star Trek, the next generation, there was a group of people, uh, 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 an, an invading group of people called the Borg. Anybody remember the Borg? B-O-R-G, the Borg. Now, he, here's what the Borg did. The Borg wasn't like the Romulans who came in and killed everybody. The Borg wasn't like the Klingons who came in and killed everybody. No, the Borg did something far more sinister. The Borg would come in, they would go to a planet, and they would assimilate. They had some kind of a weapon that once you were exposed to the weapon, you lost your freedom of will. And you became like the Borg. It was called assimilation. Now, I bring that up not because y'all need to go watch Star Trek, because you do. But, but, but that's not why I brought, I brought it up, because that's what people in power expect. They expect you to assimilate to them. We are Christian people. We believe in Jesus Christ. I do. I'm sure you do. But not everybody in America is Christian. Are, are, are you suggesting that because they're not Christian, they don't have a right to exist? Because they have not assimilated into the religion of Christianity, they don't have the right to exist? I can say that I don't agree with your theological perspective, but that doesn't mean that I don't think you have the right to exist. There's some people who, who, who are Jewish. There's some people who are Hindu. There's some people who are agnostic. There's some people who are atheists. They don't believe in any God at all. I don't agree with them, but I also don't believe that they no longer have the right to exist because they're not Christian. And I think that anybody who thinks that anybody who doesn't think like them doesn't have a right to exist, you got a problem. There's something wrong in your head. Haman says, I'll pay for it. All you got to do is give me the word. And it'll happen. All right, it took me 22 minutes to bring you up to speed to where now we can move into chapter four. Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. As you want. That's right. Spend the money how you want to spend it. 
So, ready for chapter four? When Mordecai learned what had been done, he ripped his clothes to shreds and put on sackcloth and ashes. Then he went, sackcloth is a, a, a mourning garment, uh, usually something that was used to carry uh, uh, food and things like that. Uh, sackcloth and ashes. Then he went out in the streets of the city crying out in loud and bitter cries. He came only as far as the king's gate, for no one dressed in sackcloth was allowed to enter the king's gate. As the king's order was posted in every province, there was loud lament among the Jews, fasting, weeping, wailing, and most of them stretched out on sackcloth and ashes. You ask a good question, because sackcloth was considered to be the traditional garment of those who are mourning. If, if, if I'm mourning something, they, what, what usually happened was that they tore the clothes that they were wearing and they put on sackcloth. And instead of sitting in the comfort of their home, they would go sit in ashes and they would heap the ashes on them to show their expression of mourning, their expression of grief. This was a part of their culture. This was a part of, 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 of their common experience. And so when Mordecai finds out what Haman has done, he sets out to mourn. Yes, ma'am. Oh, I'm sure other, other nations had similar type practices, but, but the one that I'm most familiar with are Jewish people. And, 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 and so they decide, he, he decides that this is what I'm going to do. Now, nowhere in the morning does he say, I'm the one who caused all of this. I just read it. Do, do, do you see anywhere where, where he says, it's my fault? Can I say this again? I, I, I'm trying to draw out what I consider to be practical, pragmatic points. Crying about something is fine. But crying about something does not fix what you're dealing with. After you've cried, you've got to acknowledge that you're the one who did. You want to know why everybody loves the 51st Psalm? David did a low down, no good, dirty, rotten thing. But the reason why everybody loves the 51st Psalm is because David acknowledged what he did. Have mercy. On me, O oh God, according to your loving kindness, according to your tender mercy, blot out my transgression. I take responsibility for what has happened. We would be a better people, and I'm not talking black, white, I'm talking Christian. We would be a better people if we took responsibility for where we are. I get so concerned about people who want to come in and cry about something 
but want to blame everybody else for what they're crying about. It's everybody. If my uncle had done what he said he was going to do, I wouldn't be in this mess. If my check had come in on time, I wouldn't have had to go rob that stuff. <laughs> we blame everybody else. And we refuse to take responsibility. Mordecai cries and cries and wails and moans. Mordecai never says, it's on me. It's my fault. I'm the one who is responsible for this. Here's something else that I want to point out. You have to be able to distinguish carefully between the condemning voice of Satan and the true grief of the Holy Spirit. What am I talking about? Satanic guilt is designed to keep you from doing anything. It's designed to keep you in the same place where you have been. Mordecai cries and moans and walks around. He had sense enough not to go inside the city. Anybody pick that up? All that crying and moaning he does, he stops at the city gate. You know why? Because he knows that he ain't going to be able to do all that in there. Exactly. And, and Jesus says they have gotten their reward, meaning they've gotten the attention that they were trying to get. So he gets everybody all upset. They see him crying and moaning. They start crying and moaning. So now you got a whole set of folk crying and moaning. I, I, I know I've said this to y'all before, but y'all remember he haw used to come on Saturday afternoons at 5 o'clock. There was this skit on Hee Haw. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Deep, dark, depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. That's what they're doing here. They're, cry, they're crying gloom, despair, and agony. But that's really a ploy of Satan. Because as long as you're crying, you ain't doing nothing else. Jeremiah is, is, is one of the four major prophets of the Old Testament. But God got tired of Jeremiah crying. Jer Jeremiah said, Lord, I've had enough I'm ready to go home. And, and God said to Jeremiah, you ain't even gone through nothing yet. He says, if you have run with footmen, translation, if you have run with folk, and folk have worn you out, what's going to happen when you have to run with horses? In other words, if you think you've gone through something, 
Just wait. There's more coming. Crying, I understand crying. I understand the need to express disappointment and grief and sorrow. But there's a time to cry and there's a time to stop crying. And Satan's intent is to keep you crying because he knows if all you're doing is crying, you ain't doing nothing to fix the situation. It is a common tactic of Satan. Instead, what we should want is the grief of the Holy Spirit. And the grief of the Holy Spirit is designed to cause you to want to get better. I messed up. I acknowledge that I messed up. But from this point forward, I'm going to be better than I was. I'm going to do better. I'm going to think better. I'm going to act better. I'm going to serve better. I'm going to be a better steward of your gospel going forward than I was before. That is the point of Holy Spirit grief. It's designed for us to first acknowledge, but then decide that we're going to get better. So what happens next? Verse 5. Esther called for Hathach, one of the royal eunuchs from the king, assigned to wait on her and told him to go to Mordecai and get the full story of what was happening. So Hathach went to Mordecai in the town square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him. He also told him the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to deposit in the royal bank to finance the massacre of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the bulletin that had been posted in Susa ordering the massacre so he could show it to Esther when he reported back with instructions to go to the king and intercede and plead with him for her people. Esther, the, the, all the weeping and the wailing reaches Esther. Esther hears it. She, 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 she hears the, the concern, and she doesn't know what's going on. And so she asks her servant to go out and get the full story by going to the man that for whatever reason she still trusts. She still trusts Mordecai. As far as I'm concerned, that trust went way out the window, but she still trusts Mordecai. Go, 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 go talk to Mordecai and find out what's going on. And Mordecai tells him everything. But Mordecai does more than what Esther expected. Esther asked for the story. Mordecai comes up on a solution. And here's the solution. I want you to go in and talk to Xerxes. And I want you to change Xerxes' mind. Yeah. Hathach came back and told Esther everything Mordecai had said. Esther talked it over with Hathach and then sent him back to Mordecai with this message. Everyone who works for the king here, and even the people out in the provinces, knows that there is a single fate for every man or woman who approaches the king without being invited. Death. 
The one exception is if the king extends his gold scepter. Then he or she may live. And it's been 30 days now since I've been invited to come to the king. When Hathach told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai sent her this message. Don't think that just because you live in the king's house, you are the one Jew who will get out of this alive. If you persist on staying silent at a time like this, help and deliverance will arrive for the Jews from someplace else, but you and your family will be wiped out. Who knows? Maybe you were made queen for just such a time as this. Now, that's about the only part of Esther that most of y'all know. Y'all read that, and y'all read it, and y'all smile, and y'all say amen. I read it, and I see something entirely different. I see a man who has been manipulating this young woman, and he's continuing to manipulate this young woman. First thing he does is threaten her. Don't think you're going to be the one who survives. If, 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 if they start killing Jews, you're going to be one of the first ones that goes. It's a terrible thing when the only way we know how to respond is with manipulation. It shows a complete lack of integrity. And if nothing else, Christian people ought to know how to behave with integrity. Now here's something for you to consider when you talk about behaving with integrity. Behaving with integrity does not come without a cost. Doing the right thing does not come without a cost attached. I know I've told this story to, to, to the Noon Bible study. If I've told it to y'all, that's all right. Act like you didn't hear it uh, before. Oh, really? I never heard that story before. Okay, so you ready? When I was in college, I, I took a course called Matrix Algebra. It was part of my, my required courses and um, wasn't something that I was particularly good at. Uh, but I, uh, I, I took a quiz in the class and I finished the quiz and I took it up to the professor and he graded it while I was there and brought it back to me. And I had a B. I, I made a B on the test. But when I looked at the answers, I realized that there were two answers that he gave me credit for that I got wrong. And I was challenged with. What, 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 what is the integritous thing to do? Well, if I'm going to behave with integrity, then I'm going to go up to the professor and I'm going to tell him that he gave me credit for answers that I did not get correct. And that's what I did. I went up to the professor. I said, excuse me, professor. Uh, I think you misgraded this. I uh, got these two answers wrong. Now, my expectation was that he was going to say, that's all right. I'm going to give you the points 
anyway. You have shown integrity. And for your integrity, I'm going to let you keep the points. Do you know what he did? He said, thank you very much. He regraded the test, and my B went to a D. And I went back to my seat, and I said to myself, you ain't going to never do this again. Because I failed to recognize that when you act with integrity, acting with integrity often costs something. Quite often, we act without integrity because we fear the cost that is associated with acting with integrity. We shave things. We, we, we finesse things. We finagle things. We, we, we embellish and obfuscate. These are nice words of saying we lie. I've learned all the nice ways of saying we lie. We, we, we embellish. We obfuscate. We, we conceal. There's another good one for lie. Okay? We do that because we recognize that there is an inherent danger with acting with complete integrity. But if we are in Christ, then even with the inherent dangers that are associated with acting with integrity, we will choose to do the right thing rather than the wrong thing. This is what Job means when he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I said to the noon Bible study today, I've, I've been thinking a lot about uh, the Hebrew boys and the fiery furnace. And, 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 and you know the story. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, you didn't bow, but I'm going to give you another chance. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have the orchestra play, and, and, and when they play, you're going to bow to my idol. And if you bow, everything is fine. If not, I'm going to put you in that fiery furnace, and you're going to die because there's no God who's going to be able to deliver you out of my hand. That's Nebuchadnezzar's words. Now, the Hebrew boys responded this way. He said, we don't even have to think about it. We don't have to go sleep on it. We don't have to go nowhere. We believe that the God we serve is able and will deliver us from your fiery furnace and from your hand. Okay, but understand this, King. Even if he doesn't, we still will not bow. Now, everybody says, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. But here, here's what's been sticking in my mind. After they said that, do you know what happened? Nebuchadnezzar put him in the fiery furnace. Don't leave that part out. We, we stop with the pronouncement, but read what comes after the pronouncement. After they stood on integrity, 
It cost him something. He put him in the fiery furnace. My point is this. Sometimes we act with integrity because we think that somehow that's going to cause us to escape the suffering. It doesn't. We still have to face the trial. We still have to face the trial. Jesus said, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And then he proceeded to go through terrible, painful, horrific, indescribable suffering. Don't think that just because you say the right words is going to cause you to escape the realities of suffering. Folk are going to treat you wrong and laugh at you because you did the right thing. And you have to be okay with them laughing at you. Folk are going to set you up. We talked about the, the, the Hebrew boys. Go, to, go to, to, to Daniel and the lion's den. They set Daniel up on the basis of his religion and his walk with God. They said, they couldn't, we, we don't have anything else we can set him up on. He ain't stole no money. He ain't run with no women. We ain't got nothing else we can set him up on. But we can set him up with regard to his God. We'll have Darius pass a law that says that for 30 days, you can't bow to anyone but to the king. And we know he ain't going to do that. Word gets to Daniel that, that Darius has, has passed this edict. And Daniel says, thank you for letting me know. And then you know what Daniel does? He goes right back into his house. Goes right back upstairs. And he doesn't do it in private. He opens the window that faces toward Jerusalem. And he gets down on his knees for everybody to see. He prays to his God. And he doesn't do it just once. Scripture says he did it three times a day. Now, do you know what they did? They said, now we got him. Don't think that folk all of a sudden change their minds and stop being low down, no good, raggedy scoundrels because you did the right thing. They're going to be low down, no good, angry scoundrels because you did the right thing. And you have to deal with the reality of that. Esther says, I can't go to the king unless the king sends for me. Mordecai said, I don't care whether he sends for you or not. You need to get in there. Because just like we gonna die, you gonna die. And then he, then he takes it a step further. He says, if you don't do it, we gonna be spared some kind of way. And people try to read God into that. Show me where God is in there. Sh show me where he says the Lord will spare us. He never says it. In fact, it's not intended to suggest God. What's it, what it's intended to do is to heighten the fear factor for Esther. Because read what it says. He says, everyone who works for the king here, 
knows that there's a single fate for every man or woman, that's not what I want. Don't think, down in verse 12, don't think that just because you live in the king's house, you're the one Jew who'll get out of this alive. If you persist in staying silent at a time like this, help and deliverance will arrive for the Jews from someplace else. He doesn't say from God. He says from someplace else. But that's a prelude to what he really wants to say. What he really wants to say is what comes after that. But you and your family will be wiped out. He's heightening the fear. And then he says something else. He says, maybe this is what you were intended for. Maybe you were made queen just for this moment. Now, who made Esther queen? Mordecai. It wasn't a hard question to answer. Mordecai made her queen. Mordecai dressed her up. Mordecai sent her in. Mordecai, read, read Esther chapter 2. says Mordecai walked by every day. And he was coaching Esther the whole time as he was walking by, making sure that she was saying and doing all the stuff that she needed to say. Mordecai made Esther queen. So when he says, maybe you were made queen for such a time as this, he said, maybe what I did was so that you could do this. Translation, you owe me. Be careful of folk who say you owe me. If people can't do right by you without the expectation of reciprocity, if they can't do right by you because it's the right thing to do, if they can't do right by you without expecting some form of remuneration, I'm not saying that it's entirely wrong. I'm saying that it's all a part of a thought process of the capitalistic system. Because capitalists don't do anything for anybody without an expectation that they're going to get something in return. That's the way they think. If I'm doing this for you, my expectation is that this is not a gesture of kindness. This is an investment with an expectation that sooner or later is going to reap a dividend. If I'm going to scratch your back, eventually my expectation is that you're going to scratch mine. If I'm going to do this, then eventually I expect you to do that. Be careful of people who say, you owe this to me. You got to do it because you have a debt that you owe to me. I remind you, going back, read the story again. Esther never said to Mordecai, oh, Mordecai, I really want to be queen. 
Mordecai, can you help me become queen? Mordecai, please spend your time and your energy and use your corrupt mind to help me become queen. Becoming queen was never on Esther's mind. Esther became queen because Mordecai wanted Esther to be queen. So Mordecai did this for Esther because Mordecai could see down the road and see what this is going to pay off for me. Now, it didn't pay off the way he thought it would because at the end of chapter 2, he thought he was going to be elevated in Xerxes' administration. And in chapter 3, we see that he was not. But now he's saying, well, I didn't get that, but I might be able to get this. And, and come to think of it, this is more important than that because now the stakes have been raised. And it's really important that I get what I need. Mordecai, I, I have said before, when you read this book, the book perhaps shouldn't be named Esther. It should be named Mordecai. <laughs> because Mordecai is the low-down, no-good, dirty scoundrel that prompts all the action that takes place in the story. Verse 15, and I'm done. Esther sent back her answer to Mordecai. Go and get all the Jews living in Susa together. Fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, either day or night. I and my maids will fast with you. If you will do this, I'll go to the king, even though it's forbidden. If I die, I die. Mordecai left and carried out Esther's instructions. Now, Esther's response to Mordecai is interesting. Clearly, his insistence has prevailed. And Esther feels compelled to do what Mordecai has asked her to do, even though it may cost her what Lincoln called the last full measure of courage, even though it may cost her her life. All that she asks is that you fast. Now, if there is a spiritual component in Esther, that's it. God's name is not called. She does not pray to God. She does not ask them to pray. But she does ask them to fast. And you and I know that closely associated with fasting is prayer. So if there is a spiritual component to this, it's right here. But it doesn't come from Mordecai. It comes from Esther. Esther says, okay, I'll do it, but I need some help to do it. I need you 
to stand with me. You can't stand with me in the room, but you can stand with me spiritually. So you go back and you get all of our brothers and sisters, all, all of, of, of our Jewish people to fast for three days. And what you're doing out there, I'm going to be doing in here. And at the end of the three days, I'm going to go in even if the king has not called for me. And if I die, I die. Now, if Esther was my niece, I got five nieces. If Esther was my niece, and one of my nieces said, if I die, I die. My response, baby, don't do that. Don't worry about it. We'll figure something else out. You, 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 I, I shouldn't have pre prevailed on you like that. I, I, we, we, we'll, we'll think of something else. You know what Mordecai said? That's a good idea. We're going to go back and we're going to fast and we're going to see what happens. I tell you, Mordecai ain't much. He ain't much. But if, 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 if there is a spirit, if, if there is a positive spiritual lesson for us to leave on, let's leave on this. Esther asked for others to stand with her. And is it not the role of Christians to stand with one another? I may not be going through what you're going through. And I may not have a full appreciation of what it is you're going through. But I can stand with you. I can touch and agree where two or three are gathered in my name, touching and agreeing. I will be there in the midst. I can bow my head and I can intercede on your behalf. I may not be going through what you're going through, but I can talk to the Lord on your behalf. There are things that I can't do but what I can't do should not stop me from doing what I can. Esther asked that they stand with her for three days as she prepared to go in to see the king. Yes, sir. Yes, yes. Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. 
That's right. That's, that's our job. Not to say I can't do, because there are so many things that we can say we can't do, but to find the things that we can do and then do them. Go ahead, Lawrence. You can start playing. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood will shed for me. May we stand together. And if there's one, we invite you to come. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I repeat after me, please. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Y'all have a good evening. God bless you, sir.